0: podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Hey, welcome to Behind the Rind, the story and science of cheese. I'm your host, Claire, and today we're going to talk about raw milk cheese. It seems like there are two camps with regards to raw milk cheese. The first...
1: Raw milk cheese has all those probiotics, man. I heard that it can, like, cure cancer, and because it's alive, it means you shouldn't have to refrigerate
0: it, you know? And the other camp... Raw means there's more bacteria in the cheese, and we know what bacteria does. It makes you sick. Dairy's dangerous, and and you shouldn't trust it. Come on, seriously? Seriously? You guys are both wrong. Huh? This month, we'll celebrate Raw Milk Cheese Appreciation Day on April 21st. So we're exploring the often misunderstood cheeses made with raw milk and bringing some serious science to what is usually just an ugly yelling match. We'll explore the history of pasteurization and talk terroir. We'll chat with cheesemaker Andy Hatch from Upland's Cheese about why he's committed to making raw milk cheese and the year that he didn't. Lastly, we'll gain a better understanding of the real risk of raw cheese by learning about the difference between some good bacteria and bad bacteria. Now, a little disclaimer. We're talking about raw milk cheese today, not fluid raw milk. Those are two entirely different products that often get confused and lumped together. Remember, cheese is a way of preserving milk, so there are tons of safeguards against bacterial baddies that raw milk cheese has and fluid raw milk might not. And Honestly, I wish I could make a whole episode just about the beauty of raw milk cheese and the way it uniquely expresses terroir. But sadly, I think an episode like that would seem like it's turning a blind eye to one of the major controversies around raw milk cheese, which is that some folks seem to view it as less safe than pasteurized cheese. So we'll make sure to touch on that as well. So to start, raw milk cheese is a cheese that's been made from milk that has not been pasteurized. Factman, help us out here.
2: Pasteurization is a process in which a liquid is heated for a period of time sufficient to destroy certain microorganisms, especially bacteria. For example, in low-temperature, long-time pasteurization, milk is heated to 63 degrees Celsius for 30 minutes, and in high-temperature, short-time pasteurization, milk is heated to 72 degrees Celsius for 15 seconds.
0: But where did this practice start? Well, with no expense spared here at Behind the Rind, I figure, why not go to the source? So let me just log in the date, 1856, and the location, France. Oh, (laughs) we're time traveling, by the way. Hold on. (laughs) Bienvenue. Bonjour, Professor. Listeners, I'd like to introduce you to none other than Mr. Louis Pasteur. Uh, enchanté. You are from
2: the future, yes? Please tell me in the future, how does the world remember me?
0: Oh, well, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Uh, this is why we're here today. Your memory is immortalized in your invention of the process we use for reducing microorganisms in milk. We call it pasteurization.
2: Excusez-moi How is this possible? That is what I am remembered for? I developed vaccines for anthrax, rabies, chicken cholera. And they remember me for
0: milk? Okay, Louis, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'll see what I can do when I get back about um, educating uh, the world about some of your other inventions and accomplishments. But we're here to ask how you discovered that heating up milk would eliminate most of the microorganisms in it. (sighs) Well...
2: I didn't really develop this pasteurization for milk. I developed it originally to cure the tragedy of soured wine.
0: Wait, what?
2: A student of mine's father was making beet juice alcohol, and it was always going sour. I looked under the microscope, and when the beet juice alcohol went sour, a different microorganism was present. Acetobacter aceti. A bacteria that turns alcohol into acetic acid. I discovered if you heat up the wine, you could kill the Acetobacter aceti and keep the flavor. So that's what they started doing with wine all over France.
0: But what about milk? Milk? Yeah, I thought you invented and patented pasteurization to eliminate pathogens in milk and save lives. Yeah, it,
2: it was true that in my time, the tuberculosis was being transmitted by milk and many people were dying. But I invented pasteurization to save wine from turning to vinegar. A much more noble cause. And pasteurizing milk was, what do we say, an afterthought.
0: Spoken like a true Frenchman. Thanks, Louis. Now, back to the future. Okay, so once Louis patented his technique, it began gaining traction in the wine and beer industries, but it really wasn't until the late 1800s that people started pasteurizing milk, and even then it wasn't really the norm. In the U.S., pasteurizing fluid milk and cheese only started becoming more common in the early 1900s, which means until around 1950, almost all cheese was made with raw milk. One of the main reasons for this change from raw to pasteurized was that milk and cheese that once came from smaller family farms and went more directly to consumers was now being co-mingled with milk from dozens of other farms and being shipped farther away to cities. This longer transport of fresh milk and shift to larger industrial operations meant that in many cases, the quality of milk suffered. So imagine this equation. You take urbanization plus early 1900s industrialization multiplied by a total lack of understanding of basic microbiology, and what you get is a lot of sloppy practices and unhealthy dairy products in the mid-1900s. So given the era, pasteurization was a decent way to prevent some of that sloppiness from making people sick. However, over a half a century later, we have learned a lot Modern dairy systems, federal regulations, and advanced research on the microbiology of cheese mean that raw milk cheesemakers are much more well-equipped to produce healthy and delicious cheese. Currently in the U.S., laws are strict around raw milk cheese, and it's a subject that has inspired a lot of yelling from two polarized ends of the spectrum without much thoughtful listening. If cheesemakers in the U.S. want to make a cheese with raw milk, they must age it a minimum of 60 days. The FDA's rationale here is that often the longer a cheese ages, the lower moisture content and the higher acidity a cheese has, which bad bacteria have a hard time thriving in. However, if we go back to April 22nd, 1949, when the original 60-day aging rule was put in place for raw milk cheese, we find that the FDA had good intentions, but little scientific evidence to back up this law. To quote the FDA, Viable pathogenic microorganisms in cheese, even when present to such an extent as to be capable of causing disease in humans, tend to die when the cheese is held for some time at temperatures above 35 degrees Fahrenheit. It is not known with certainty how long cheeses must be held before they become safe. Hmm. Not known with certainty? In essence, the 60-day aging rule for raw milk cheeses in the U.S. was based on simple observations at the time, not scientific data. On top of that, back in 1949, the main type of cheese that was examined as the foundation of this law was cheddar cheese. Now, when making cheddar cheese, it's true. At 60 days, an aged cheddar is an unhospitable place for bad bacteria. It's got less moisture, it's pretty salty, and the pH is fairly low. But fast forward to 2018, and Americans are buying and producing many more types of cheese than just cheddar. And those cheeses most definitely differ in moisture content, salt content, and acidity, which are the main driving factors in a bad bacteria's ability to survive, right? So it sounds like we have a law that's a little bit outdated for our current American artisanal cheese industry. But enough of this bureaucratic nonsense. You might be thinking at this point, why would somebody go through all this trouble to make raw milk cheese at all? And oh man, I am so glad you asked.
1: My name is Andy Hatch, and I'm the owner and cheesemaker of Upland's Cheese in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. We're a family dairy farm in the southwestern part of the state. We've been making raw milk cheese here on our farm for 18 years. Uh, My wife, Caitlin, and I, own and run the farm together with another couple, Scott and Liana and Marika. They run the cow side of the operation, do all the milking and field work. And then Caitlin and I uh, handle the cheese making and aging and selling.
0: Now, Andy Hatch isn't just any old cheesemaker. He and his team at Upland's Cheese make the most awarded cheese in America. Pleasant Ridge Reserve is a raw milk, alpine-style cheese that has won the American Cheese Society's Best in Show three times. No other cheese has achieved this feat. In addition to making Pleasant Ridge Reserve, Uplands makes a seasonal cheese in the fall called Rush Creek Reserve from their farm's fresh, raw milk. We want to make something
1: that nobody else makes. And so to that end, uh, using milk from our own cows, unpasteurized, gives us the most direct link possible between our cows and our fields and the finished cheese. The cheese should taste and smell like our farm. And so to break that link between uh, our farm and the cheese by pasteurizing never made sense.
0: In the cheese and wine industry, we call this terroir, which means land in French, and refers to how the geographic location and culture of a region produce a distinct product that is near impossible to replicate in any other environment. A crucial way that a cheesemaker expresses terroir in their cheese is to work with raw milk, which still has the local microflora, the bacteria, yeasts, and mold native to that region, naturally present. This gives the cheese a variability from day to day, season to season, and ensures that the finished product is unique to its place. Terroir in English is often called a taste of place
1: there are times you know when when we'll have a really sublime batch of pleasant ridge and you know i I recognize that that quality is a result of the milk not of you know any particular skill i have as a cheesemaker and it's not because we've done something differently you know we're pretty dialed in technically doing the same thing but when you see the milk express itself differently batch to batch and you see how beautiful a batch of Pleasant Ridge can be. What I feel then is an appreciation for the farm. And the fact that the milk is raw is what allows us to show off the quality of the farm, the pasture, and our cows.
0: Andy does everything right. He's a farmstead cheese producer, which means he makes cheese from the milk of his own herd right on his farm. The milk doesn't travel more than 70 feet from cow to creamery. And he's pasture-based, a seasonal dairy, which means these cows are abiding by the natural rhythm of the earth and their bodies. In the summer, when there's fresh grass in Wisconsin, these cows are out grazing. And when it's winter with six feet of snow outside, they're safe in the barn eating hay. They're only milked May through November, and then they get a vacation until they have calves again in late spring. This is about as perfect a scenario as you can get for healthy, delicious cheesemaking. But in 2014, this idyllic cheesemaking scenario was threatened.
1: There was a a feeling that that grew pretty quickly in 2014 that the artisan cheese industry was kind of under assault and it wasn't clear what the rules were and, you know, if the goalposts were being moved, where they're being moved to or why And that environment. Was pretty unsettling. And I think any industry reacts with fear and anger and confusion when uh, their regulators are unclear.
0: In 2014, the FDA sent shockwaves through the cheese industry by abruptly announcing they would start enforcing two rules one, that would prohibit the use of aging cheese on wooden boards, and two, another rule that mandated no more than 10 non-toxigenic E. coli per gram of cheese. Now, I know what you're thinking. Um, I don't want any E. coli in my cheese, but it's a lot more complex than that.
2: There are over 40 different strains of E. coli, most of which are healthy and not illness-producing. Many of these good E. coli strains are found in the human gut and aid in digestion. The most common pathogenic strain of E. coli that causes disease is classified as 0157H7. Other negative strains of E. coli are 0104H4 and the big 6 toxin shitotoxin-producing strains.
0: Fact man, what would I do without you?
2: Statistically speaking, it is unlikely that your life would be significantly altered.
0: (sighs) All brain, no humor. Anywho... What the FDA failed to realize is, with cheese made from pasteurized milk, the presence of non toxigenic E. coli is a red flag. It signals that there was contamination post-production, because remember, once you pasteurize milk, you're wiping the microbial slate clean, and the cheesemaker is only adding back in very specific bacteria that they want. But with cheese made from raw milk— small amounts of non-toxigenic E. coli are a natural part of the healthy native microflora. As Fachman mentioned, non-toxigenic E. coli is found everywhere in nature. So when it naturally appears in raw milk cheese, it doesn't mean the cheese is contaminated. And it's in no way harmful to humans. That's why it's called non-toxigenic. It's harmless.
1: The rule changes. I'm thinking now about, you know, the prohibition on wood boards or a testing for non-taxogenic E. coli, those rule changes were scary. One, because they came without warning, and two, because they weren't based in science. There is an extra level of uh, stress when um, you know handling a cheese that you know is somewhat in the FDA's crosshairs bumps right up against that sixty-day limit. Uh, the current FDA law. Uh, We suffered financially in that year, uh, and I know other people did too.
0: In the end, the FDA spent two years testing over 1,600 raw milk cheeses from the U.S. and abroad and found that less than 1% had any flaw, and not a single one of these cheeses had that scary pathogenic E. coli 0157H7. Uh, and
1: this is, of course, something that the international scientific literature had already documented. So there was a big groan and eye roll from the industry you know, that the FDA felt like they had to go through a, a big, expensive testing regime just to prove what everybody already knew. Once things kind of settled out, the FDA backed away from the wood board prohibition. They then backed away from the non taxogenic E. coli testing. So in both cases, they admitted they were wrong in those approaches. And now going forward, we feel like their behavior has been a little more um, transparent.
0: Fast forward to 2018. FISMA, or the Food Safety and Modernization Act, an act that was signed into law in 2011, is currently what so many cheesemakers, importers, and distributors are wrestling with. It was designed as the FDA's attempt to be more proactive rather than reactive in ensuring safe food reaches America's tables. But as with any change in regulation, it's proving to be a headache to figure out how this affects raw milk cheesemakers.
1: There actually were, though, I think some positive um, outcomes from that situation. Uh, Number one, our industry got more organized, both in terms of presenting itself to the FDA and developing resources that, that help other members make sure that they are up to snuff in terms of food safety. Uh, so as an industry, we, we I think we tightened ourselves up in response to that. And the other positive result uh, was we developed a dialogue with FTA that previously hadn't existed. And at times the dialogue was pretty tense, but it exists. And that has been a big difference going forward.
0: This is really encouraging. What may have in the past been a more adversarial relationship is hopefully maturing into a sophisticated exchange where the cheese industry is insisting the FDA make their rulings based on facts and the most cutting-edge scientific research available. And the FDA is ensuring that creameries are properly licensed, hygienic, and trained.
1: Removing bacteria from our diet and our environment altogether You know, there's a strong argument to be made. I think that you're ultimately going to weaken the immune systems of the population. It seems logical to me that um, trying to sanitize our our bodies, our diets, our environments is probably not a good idea. And, you know, to try to uh, conceive of food as something entirely absent of bacteria like non toxogenic E. coli, is, to me, in the long term, is, is probably not a smart approach. I think we absolutely need to prove our food is free of pathogenic E. coli. That's a different issue. But that goal, have pathogen-free food, uh, should not be extended to say we need bacteria-free food. That's an entirely different issue.
0: And with new research coming out about bacterial communities in raw milk cheeses, there have been murmurs about potentially changing the 60-day aging rule. And that seems like what this is about. Bacteria has been lumped together as all bad. And while there are current movements that celebrate healthy bacteria and probiotics and yogurt and kombucha, there's still more to be done. We need to cultivate an understanding of the difference between pathogen-free food and bacteria-free food. If you'd like to support raw milk cheese production in the U.S., please check out Old Ways Cheese Coalition at oldwayscheese.org. In honor of Raw Milk Appreciation Month, I encourage you to get out there and sample some of the best of what American artisanal cheesemakers have to offer. Try some of Upland Cheese's Pleasant Ridge Reserve, and when the fall rolls around, snatch up one of their coveted wheels of Rush Creek Reserve. Another of my all-time favorite raw milk cheesemakers is Jacobs and Britchford. Cheesemaker Matthew Britchford milks about 100 cows on his family farm and makes Farmstead raw milk cheese. My favorite is a seasonal cheese called a marabella. It's this washed rind, soft, gooey, luscious thing with a delicate floral aroma and fruitiness. I'd like to thank Andy Hatch of Upland's Cheese and Matthew Britchford of Jacobson Britchford Cheese for taking the time to share their thoughts. For a complete list of resources for each episode and detailed show notes, please visit BehindTheRind.com. If you have any questions, comments, don't hesitate to email me at claire at BehindTheRind. And if you think this podcast earned your subscription, please subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Tune in next month for more stories and science from behind the ride.
2: Sweet fromage, do not betray me now.
0: (laughs) Hi, fellow cheese lovers, Cheese Whiz Gina here, and I invite you to subscribe to our Noon on Tuesday podcast to hear all about cheese all the time. You can listen on iTunes or SoundCloud or subscribe via feed burner under Noon on Tuesday. You can also watch us live every week on Facebook at Venissimo Cheese at, you guessed it, Noon every Tuesday Pacific Time. We're fun, we're cheesy, so tune in and tell your friends to tune in too.
1: Ciao!